been a long while since I met one who didn't know me. You should get home. How'd you do that? It's what I do. You're just a girl. That's what I keep saying. anyone recognize this theme song in this beginning i'm so excited <laughs> oh man Woo! well hello <laughs> and welcome to modern medieval the podcast i am megan and i'm elo and i guess you've had a couple of seconds and if you know megan you'll know what this is buffy, from. Buffy, buffy. there we go <laughs> Megan, are you a big Buffy fan? <laughs> Just a little bit, you know, uh, nothing no. too extreme. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, our dear audience will have seen the title. Yes. So I guess you guys know we're going to speak about Buffy, right? <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. Um, I mean, not just <laughs> Buffy, but she's the case example of the overall arc of what this podcast episode hopes to get Achieve. to. Yes. Right. Whereas in the previous episodes, we've kind of had the setting of Megan asking me questions. This time, it's my turn to ask Megan questions. Um, but instead of like delving right in, I will ask you a bit of like, you know, a setup question. So for a bit of context, as you guys know, we have um, been in the same class and I met Megan at the, right at the beginning. I think we had a, our first conversation after the first class, possibly. Uh, I don't, honestly, I don't remember. I remember we started like talking and hanging out a little and studying together fairly early on, but I honestly don't recall the first encounter. So what I do remember, though, is that we were speaking via message mm-hmm. and I, we were mentioning, we're talking about books and you were like, oh, yeah, you should read this gothic short story collection, which I've shamefully still haven't read. <laughs> so, um, it's in London and I'm not in London, but it will be read and be given back to you, I promise. Um, and so I guess the first real question for our audience is do you mind telling us more about your background do you like um gothic novels and gothic short stories and just give us a bit of context on what interests you if you don't mind yeah definitely so yeah the book i lent elo was the botanical gothic collection from the british library's publication series tales of the weird i have i think five or six of those books now i've read quite a few of them Uh, You have seven. (laughs) Yeah, I have a lot of them. Uh, So yeah, the Gothic is definitely something that I have had a lifelong passion for. My background is in literature primarily. I think we talked about this a bit in our very, very first, you know, getting modern medieval episode. So yeah, in high school, I went through like a very kind of romantic Gothic phase. My freshman year of high school, I was very much it's going to be kind of embarrassing, but inspired by like Bella Swan and reading books. And I'm a very private person. And so I went through a phase where I read like Jane Eyre, Wilkie Collins's The Woman in White. I read Dracula on my own. I read Frankenstein on my own. I read quite a few Jane Austens on my own, as well as doing all the reading for school, which was like the Iliad and Chinua Chibes, Things Fall you Apart. Read, you read the Iliad at school? Well, so we were supposed to. That was like supposed to be the first thing we read. And then our teacher was like, none of you are going to read this. Read the very first chapter to get a feel for it. And then he just showed us this really ridiculous 
home like student video of the rest of the the Iliad and the Odyssey uh and that was like our oh studying God. of it which was great that the other class traumatizing as well <laughs> the other class had to read the entire thing or like certain sections of it but we got away with just the first chapter which was I don't know like six or seven pages which is more than enough you know when you're 14. Yeah I think it's a bit young to make people read the Iliad like it's it's like in Italy they make people read the Divine Comedy when they're 14 and like everyone hates it and it's just like yeah. but you're too young to read that like I mean I know it's you know very important but it's not you're not yeah. going to get a feel for it. No definitely um yeah, I mean, I guess that was just like, you know, honors English at a Roman Catholic private school in Pasadena, California. I don't know. But so, I mean, like reading Jane Eyre on my own at 14, I enjoyed the book. It was my favorite for a long time. But I actually just reread it the other week in preparation for my, you know, background and my PhD, which is what this episode is about. And I was like, wow, 14-year-old me did not pick up on anything <laughs> <laughs> much of this I've had that where I've read books that I've read when I was 13 I was like, or like watch movies that I watched when I was 10 I was like definitely didn't get this <laughs> I mean to bring Disney and Disney is like a case point example of that where you hear a joke or something you're like I remember laughing at this as a child and not getting the innuendo or something yeah. you know you're like uh, three-year-olds watch this so yeah I was I've always loved literature lots and so my undergraduate degree that I did at UC Berkeley was on an 1850s sensational novel. So mm -hmm. sensational novels uh, or the city mysteries genre were, as they kind of sound, these really long episodic or serial books that were published in journals and newspapers each week or each month that talked about the like insidious underside of the city. So this was during the early to mid 19th century. So as cities are expanding, right? And getting mm -hmm. larger, more complex. And so my book was on a New Orleans version of this written by a German author. And this is related to the Gothic because of the, you know, corrupt monks or church. Usually they were Jesuit priests, the like dark villain. Priests. I know. They always get such a bad rep. Yeah. Poor guys. Um, you know, the innocent women that are lured by the libertine, hunky male, uh, the underground networks, which is a very gothic trope. Thank you, Castle of Toronto, for that. <laughs> <laughs> Have uh, you read that book? I haven't. Well, we were supposed to read it for Bob. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 I read it um, for class this year. It was good. It's very of its time in regards to the way that it's written and kind of superfluous, long, you know, passages, even though it's a short book. But so, yeah, my undergraduate was in this kind of field of research, even though I didn't necessarily call it gothic. I was saying it was something different. And then I kind of digressed for a few years, did two masters. One was at Edinburgh in cultural studies on Polish posters. Loved it. It's amazing. Love Poland. Well, I love visiting Poland. Right now, their political situation is a, leaves a bit to be desired, to say the least. But uh, I love the culture. And then now, you know, MA History of Art at UCL, <laughs> <laughs> where my current dissertation is actually on another Polish-oriented artist, Eva Partum, and her active poetic artworks. So not Gothic at all, but I've had a literary thread through my work where I've been looking at poetics, language, the influence of all that. And it was through Bob's class this year, actually, that I kind of rediscovered how much I love literature and especially the Gothic and kind of seeing it pop up everywhere. So oh, Bob always gets good shout outs. Thank you, Bob. Uh, I love Bob. Yeah, so, <laughs> me too. So I guess that's like a very, I don't know how brief that was, but that's, my background a, in a nutshell. Yeah. So I guess then the next, the following question kind of, you know, gives another chronological feel for the, for this topic. Mm -hmm. So you wrote about Buffy, Buffy for Bob, right? Yes. Um, so I am a newcomer to Buffy, relatively. <laughs> I watched the series for the first time just this past fall. Really? Yeah. So Buffy had always kind of been on my radar, 
man, when I graduated high school, so in between high school, my first year of college, I was home a lot and I was really into Supernatural and I would watch it on like the chiller channel or something. They would do two episodes a day, you know, during the weekdays. And Buffy was always on, I think, before the first Supernatural episode. So sometimes I would capture, you know, snippets of the show and I enjoyed it, but I never made the effort to like watch it. And then this past October, I was like, I need a spooky show to watch for the Halloween season. Last year was Haunting of Hill House. And so this year was Buffy because I was like vampires, crypts, all of that. And Mm -hmm. I just fell hard. I was not ready for this show to resonate and inspire and just like have me love it so much. Wow. (laughs) I've never really been like a fangirl before, but Buffy instantly fangirling. It's really funny to like know this now because at the time it was like, oh, well, clearly she's watched this before and like no. it's been a passion for her of hers for a while. Blah, blah. No. Um, so for context, I don't know if we've said this already, but we used to have like um, essay proposals and we'd talk them through with Bob and our classmates. And so we'd get ideas and feedback from them. And when Megan did hers, she was like, it was a beginning of the pandemic. So it was the first, one of the first online classes we did. And she was just like, I remember because I just arrived and I was in quarantine. I was just like, everything feels too much. But then I remember distinctly Megan like going like on and on and on about Buffy. And it was great. It was really fun. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, our class heard a lot of Buffy. Bob heard a lot about Buffy because actually the very first essay for Bob, I tried to write about Buffy and medievalisms. And... Mm. I just didn't really have like a concept or a notion at that time, like a essay. It was more just kind of thoughts. So in yeah. speaking with Bob, he thought that I should have stuck, you know, stick with my background. So I ended up writing about Joan of Arc and her presentation in cinematic posters. That was a good, good, that sounded really cool as well. So yeah, I mean, as I mentioned last episode, love Joan of Arc, have loved her for decades and and posters so that links to my Edinburgh dissertation but I just could not let Buffy go so <laughs> when our second essay was coming around I was determined to make it about Buffy I promise everyone I'm a sane human being I just really wanted to write like a fun essay so I rewatched Buffy in the spring so the second time within like six months <laughs> uh, looking for Medievalisms, gothicisms, influences, and all of that. And I kind of, in watching, started to notice patterns and certain like elements that were appearing. But it actually wasn't until that final weeks where we did the course on saints and relics that that it had this aha moment of thinking of Buffy as a modern day saint and the cult of personality around Buffy. So. That was what my second essay for Bob was on that was written during that first month of quarantine. So I'm glad that I had a fun essay to write because uh, for everyone, that was such a hard time. But yeah, writing and it was also a transition to studying from home, right? So Yeah, so yeah, I ended up writing um, a Buffy essay for Bob titled um, The Nova Vitae of Buffy. And I compared her to the hagiographic genre and hagiography is the writing of sacred lives. So the Oxford English Dictionary defines it as holy writing or the Mm -hmm. writing of the lives of saints, the saints' lives as a branch of literature or legend. So I compared the hagiography story, particularly of St. Margaret or St. Margaret the Demon Slayer, per Bob's recommendation. So notice here, dear audience, how we've skillfully managed to talk to you about similar things throughout the weeks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yes, this sounds really cool. So do you mind elaborating a bit more on ideas that you had on St. Margaret, um, on the general structure? Um, Because I think it's a very interesting essay that you did write in the end. And it might be interesting for everyone else as well. Yeah, definitely. So in this Nova Vitae, which... That means the new life. And I took inspiration of that title actually from Dante Alighieri. So Dante getting a shout out in this Dun, 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 again. <laughs> um, and his La Vida Nova from 1294, so the end of the 13th century, 
where he desired to begin a new art form to adequately express his emotions and feelings. So I thought that this was a really lovely overlap of what I wanted to do with Buffy in comparison to Virgin Martyrs, though Buffy is not a virgin by the end of her story. But I thought this was like a great way to kind of set up my... Oh dear, spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, warning for everyone, this... This episode is full of spoilers, so if you want to watch Buffy and have not, pause now because I spoil quite a few things. That's all right. I think our audience can take it. (laughs) So looking at Buffy with this kind of medieval lens or medievalism, medievalismist lens, because the show is not medieval. It's not Mm -hmm. even really gothic. It's Mm -hmm. these watered down stereotypical tropes of like the isms of this. Mm -hmm. So if that makes sense, kind of like I'll talk about a scene where Buffy goes into like an underground kind of cavern and it's very gothic looking because it's like this church that was swallowed by the earth and there's these candles everywhere and it's very dark and broody and gloomy and seems very gothic. Mm -hmm. But it's more just that aesthetic rather than actually functioning as gothic itself. Right. So... In regards to this essay, I kind of took a fun twist with the notions of literature, and I decided that these quasi-medieval elements function on another medieval level. So I was like, well, I could look at the entire seven-season series of Buffy, so all 145 episodes, as a Libri Miraculorum, or a Book of Miracles, which is Mm -hmm. something that's related to saints, because they do miracles and they're holy. Yeah. And... So I was like, well, instead of an illuminating manuscript or a hagiographic text for Buffy, each mm-hmm. episode is a moving image chapter, right? Mm-hmm. Like they begin, they end, but they also continue the overall arc story. Yeah. And then each episode you could think of, because there's usually a moral somewhere in there, you know, don't abandon your friends, be honorable, don't smoke, whatever it is, could work as a sermo modernist or mm-hmm. a modern sermon, which is something that hagiographic texts were taken and applied to. One of the best examples are the Sermones de Sanctis, or Sacred Sermons, of James of Varane, who I took the scholar Jenny Bledsoe's examination of him. And I used this example particularly because Varane takes St. Margaret as a case example, and he plays upon different ideas of her from her hagiographic text, that she was young or that she was a bride of Jesus, all these things. And then applies them to the everyday so that she becomes a model that is applicable for people to follow. And Mm -hmm. I think this parallels Buffy because, I mean, if you were just to go online, I mean, I follow two Facebook groups that are about Buffy and there's questions of like, what would Buffy do? Like she is a moral exemplar for us and presents the hardships in life, which is what a saint is supposed to do, be like a role model. So I was looking at this very, you know, 1990s, potentially kitschy, whatever, uh, teen, dramedy, romance, gothic, fantasy fiction series, right? And comparing it to what has sometimes jokingly been called the fan fiction of the Middle Ages, I love. (laughs) Because, for example, St. Margaret, who my case saint in this example is, she is supposed to be from the late 3rd to early 4th century. So she was supposed to be alive during the reign of Diocletian, which is an actual moment. She, her life, she died when she was 16, so 284 to 305. But her overall story mm-hmm. and the elements in it are seen much more as kind of apocryphal or metaphors rather than actual events. And that's very common through a lot of different saints' texts ways to kind of make them seem like these super extraordinary humans blessed by God rather than, you know, just people that did good things. Right. So briefly, I'm just going to kind of run through my structure of my essay for everyone because you might be like, okay, this sounds interesting, but just like, what? I don't get it. Like, where are you going with this? Like, okay, I buy the episodes as illuminated manuscripts, but what's actually happening? Right. So I took three case examples from Buffy and compared them to St. Margaret. And this was a very kind of superficial comparison. Mm -hmm. Parallels run much, much deeper. But, you know, when you have 3,500 word limit, you can only go so far. First of all, I don't know if people are familiar with the lore of Buffy, but 
the kind of setup is that she's a vampire slayer. In every generation, there is a chosen one. She alone will stand against the vampires, the demons, and the forces of darkness. She is the slayer. And that's kind of like the lore, is that there's one girl in all the world who can slay vampires. So she has superhuman strength, super speed, and all this kind of like physical ability. And then Sarah Michelle Gellar, she's, it's kind of an ironic thing because she's little. She's like five foot two. She's really kind of like petite. And then she just like kicks fucking ass all the time. And it's like a joke throughout the series. And it's meant to be a form of female empowerment. So Joss Whedon, the creator, wanted to subvert the horror film trope of the girl running down the alley and being slaughtered. She's Mm -hmm. normally blonde. She's usually like the best friend. And it's kind of ironic because Sarah Michelle Gellar portrays this exact character in I Know What You Did Last Summer, which that chase sequence is top five easily of best chase scenes in all of the horror films I've seen. It's so good. But Joss Whedon wanted to subvert this idea. So rather than having that little blonde girl who goes down the alley and gets killed, to have Buffy be the hero. Not the heroine, Mm -hmm. but the hero. So Buffy can do all these things. It's amazing. Her being a slayer, I viewed as a calling, which can parallel a sacred calling, right? To become a saint, to follow the Mm -hmm. will of God. So that was the first link. Then I thought, well, Giles, Buffy's watcher, kind of functions as the the shepherd of her faith, if you will, Mm -hmm. like of her being a slayer, which Margaret was born to a pagan father and he wanted her to marry another man of like the, the pagan faith, the Roman faith. And she said no. And she went to live in the country with her Christian aunt. So that kind of, I thought, functioned as like a parallel because there's another adult supervising the, the calling. So right. anyways, so my examples with Buffy are the first season, the finale, season five, the gift finale, and then season seven, especially the finale. Because so the end of season one, Buffy from this revelation from the Pergamon Codex discovers that the only way she can defeat the master, who is this super vampire villain, he's one of the old ones who has been, he's like trapped in this weird little bubble underground, like he can't escape because of a a curse. And he's been wreaking havoc in Sunnydale where Buffy lives. And so the only way that Buffy can defeat him is by fulfilling this prophecy where she dies. And he kills her and he ascends and causes the apocalypse. It just so happens that his ascension is on the day of prom. So Buffy, in this white flowy gown that her mom bought her for prom, with the black leather jacket given to her by Angel, a kind of guardian angel vampire. He's like a good vampire with a soul. That's a whole other thing. And a crossbow. So crossbow, medieval. That's a medieval weapon. Woohoo! Goes down into what is known as the Hellmouth which is mm-hmm. mouth of hell, which is where the master is currently living in his bubble of non-escape. She goes down to fulfill this prophecy. After quitting her calling, because she tells Giles she doesn't want to die, she's only 16, which is so fair. Mm-hmm. After a massacre at the school that really, really affects Willow, her best friend, decides, I have, to, I have to do this thing. Buffy is walking down a sewer tunnel in a flowing white gown and a black leather jacket. So... Looking at this symbolically, right? White and flowing that can be emphasizing her purity and innocence. Whereas the black leather jacket suggests she's tough and ready to fight and that she has an edge. And then mm-hmm. the crossbow, medieval, and that she also a crossbow. I don't know if you've ever like seen them, audience, but you can only fire one at a time. And they oh, take really? a lot of strength to like crank the, the wheel or whatever to like project the arrow so basically Buffy's going down with like one shot so it also shows an element of confidence in her skill so she confronts the master she makes a very precise shot at his heart but he catches the arrow and like snaps in his hand and then he sucks the blood from Buffy's neck and then tosses her into an underground pool of water which she then drowns in so this I thought was very parallel to St. Margaret because St. Margaret, in one of her trials, so she's captured by the Romans and is forced 
to try to renounce her faith, her faith in God and Jesus. And she refuses. And so she goes through a series of trials, which is something that they were really into doing to make you rescind your faith. One of them is that they put her in a tub of boiling hot water. Sometimes it's boiling pitch, so like tar, and tried to have her confess. And she escapes Mm -hmm. unharmed. So there's this notion of drowning there. And then secondly, while in the uh, prison cell, a demon, sometimes he's seen as Beelzebub, so Satan himself, other times he's just a random demon, approaches Margaret. And there are two versions of this. One is that it swallows her. It's like a dragon and it swallows her and she does the sign of the cross. And from doing that, bursts out of this dragon. It like causes him to explode. (laughs) So there's lots of depictions of St. Margaret emerging from a dragon. But the other one is that she beats him with a hammer and like trods on his neck, which is, I think, a very physical manifestation of female strength. And so this links to the second Buffy crux. So Buffy, she's drowning in this pool. She's floating. Her arms are outstretched in like the version Mm -hmm. of the cross in Christ. But Angel and her best friend, one of her best friends, Xander comes and Xander does CPR and Buffy revives. She was only dead for like a second. So we also have that parallel of re-rising, re-emerging. So then in season five, Buffy, you know, faces yet another apocalypse. That's just a casual at this point. This is apocalypse like nine in the series or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I want to like talk about the hammer scene because I think this is great. So season five, the villain is Glorificus or Glory, who is a hell god. And she is very, very strong. She's equivalent to Buffy, if not stronger. So the only way that Buffy can physically harm her is by getting the hammer of the troll god Olaf. And so Buffy is like wailing on Glory in this final battle and just bashing her everywhere and flying her across the room. That eventually causes Glory to disappear. Her alter eagle, Ben, who's like the human body that Glory's possessing, it's really complex, emerges, and she's defeated. But so Glory, the way for her to escape back to her hell dimension that she was cast away from was to use the key, which just happens to be Buffy's younger sister, Dawn, who was created by these monks for Buffy to protect. Makes sense, right? Uh, To be like bled to death, basically, a blood Mm -hmm. ritual. This ritual, unfortunately, starts even after Glory is defeated. So this, like, giant orb portal of light is ripping across the fabric of all inner dimensions. So, like, these weird aliens are coming out and all kinds of monsters. A dragon actually emerges briefly from the portal, which I think is really interesting. I don't know if that's just, like, a science fiction thing on the behalf of the creators, but in this parallel to St. Margaret, you know, you're like, ha, dragon, cool. But, um... Buffy realized that the only way that you can close this portal is by the blood stopping flowing from the key. And Buffy doesn't want to sacrifice or kill her sister. And somehow the monks created Dawn from Buffy. It's not really clear how, but they like share the same blood because that's how it works. So Buffy realizes the key to the enigma from her desert spirit walk of her gift is death. So her gift is not death because she kills vampires because they're already half dead. So that kind of Mm. didn't make sense. Buffy's gift is to sacrifice herself because she shares the same blood as Dawn. So this is interesting because as Gregory Sakal points out in his essay on Buffy, taken to its Latin root, sacrifice literally means to make holy. So in this act of sacrifice, Buffy is herself becoming holy, which to me was like, what? <laughs> and I think this is parallel to the ultimate martyrization of Margaret because Margaret is sanctified because she sacrifices her life for the sake of Christ, for the proper religion, however you want to look at it. And Margaret's beheaded at the age of 16. Mm-hmm. That's like the only way you could kill virgin martyrs was by mm-hmm. beheading them. Because like boiling them whatever, they were always saved by some sort of divine intervention. And that's just kind of curious also because when Buffy's bitten by the master, she has a scar on her neck, which is at the exact point where a blade would have to chop off your head. So there's that idea of like a sacred mission. 
And then, of course, since we've talked, there's seven seasons, right? So Buffy somehow reappears. She's resurrected yet again. So second resurrection. So talk about, you know, a Christ-like figure. And in the seventh season, Big Bad, so like the main villain, is known as the first evil, who mm-hmm. is kind of this like non-corporeal version of Lucifer. He's basically the evil before evil was even born. So if we right. just think about that, like at least in the Judeo-Christian faith, there was no evil before Lucifer's fall. So mm-hmm. nonetheless, so the first, because Buffy died and was resurrected, the like balance between good and evil is thrown to chaos, right? So I just want to briefly read the comparisons of these free wall, just, but I just find that this is like really interesting. And then I promise we'll get into more interesting things. <laughs> no, it's super interesting. It's, um, it's fascinating. But so the first evil, you know, is trying to, manipulate the balance of good and evil and basically cause another apocalypse because that's what the big bads and Buffy do is they try to end the world because that makes sense. So Buffy had actually encountered the first evil once before in season three, episode 10, Amends, mm-hmm. uh, because the first evil, only way that it can appear is by taking on the presence or the physical appearance of someone who has died. Mm-hmm. And then it like haunts you through that. So Buffy encounters the first evil in season three underground, as you do, as her late teacher, Jenny Callender, who she was really close with. Jenny dated Giles, so kind of like family. And the first tells Buffy, You think you can fight me? I'm not a demon, little girl. I am something that you can't even conceive. The first evil. Beyond sin, beyond death. I am the thing the darkness fears. You'll never see me, but I am everywhere. Every being, every thought, every drop of hate. All right, I get it. You're evil. Do we have to chat about it all day? And it's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You're evil, which is really funny. Buffy kind of casts off the first evil in this moment. And then the first evil comes back in season seven. And I think that this speech, even though it was quite early on, parallels one of the expository speeches of Beelzebub to Margaret. And it tells her this, which I think while her foot is upon his neck, so like a moment of female strength, right? And Beelzebub says, I let them talk about God and discuss the nature of goodness and love each other virtuously without illicit desire or any improper thoughts. Then, through this security, I make my first attack on them and shoot very secretly and wound their unwary hearts before they realize it with a most venomous drug. They cannot cast me down before they conquer themselves. So comparing these two speeches, uh, there are direct relations of manipulation, desire, darkness, and secrets. And at the core of their moral spiritual battles, Margaret and Buffy are facing the same essential darkness, this manifestation of evil. So in the end of season seven, in the final battle, Buffy and the first come face to face. And literally because the first presents itself as Buffy because she has died. So Buffy spits at the the devil, get out of my face, which is like a go away, but also literally like out of my body. Mm-hmm. And I just think that this parallels again, Margaret bashing the devil with the hammer and Buffy like beating glory, all the vampires, literally standing up to the essence of pure evil. So in these moments, they are like strong women, not taking the bullshit of the world. And in this particular moment, Buffy's not only Margaret, but all women, saint or not, fighting for humanity, for what is good, and for the right to be, to be a self. And so I conclude by saying she is Saint Buffy, the vampire slayer and Our Lady of Protection. Oh, it's so nice. It's so interesting. It's, you know, it's really fascinating to see how these you know, things that we do in our spare time become, have actually like quite a lot of an impact on how we perceive things and also with things that we generally find interesting. And so it's cool to see how like, like a pop culture, culture TV show is actually so related to the medieval. So thank you for coming on and talking about this. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I don't know, highly improbable that the writers of the show were thinking of St. Margaret, even though she had a large cult in creating Buffy. But 
I guess I just wanted to highlight the like similarities that have rippled through the centuries of strong female women encountering darkness, of sacrifice, of forms of the patriarchy, like literally trying to take down these women because the master definitely can be a parallel to like patriarchal values. I mean, he calls Buffy like little girl and stuff like that. And same with the first evil. Yeah, for sure. And so I guess, you know, talking, talking about strong women, um, this leads to something else, doesn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> so I know you can't divulge too much of your PhD proposal, but can you tell the audience how that like led you to think about your PhD proposal? Yeah. So I loved writing this Buffy essay so, so much. And Bob actually, when he sent back their remarks, said that my like passion was palpable. So that felt nice. Um, so writing this essay, things started to kind of click for me. And my past interests, so like as I was mentioning earlier, my love of the Gothic, um, also discovering this genre of hagiography in the medieval. I've always really liked saints, but never really studied them. And this just opened like a door where I was just thinking, give it to me. I want all of this. I am so into this. So for the Buffy essay, Bob had recommended that I read Carol Clover's The Final Girl Theory from her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, which Mm -hmm. I did do because Buffy has been compared to The Final Girl. Mm -hmm. I just didn't necessarily think she fit this fit per se in this current argument, but it does fit in what I consider my PhD proposal. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who don't know, The Final Girl was proposed by Carol J. Clover in the early 90s, I believe 91, 1991. And so what this means is, so in her study, Carol J. Clover looked at 1970s slasher horror films, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacres 1 and 2, Halloween, and all of those, like the kind of iconic classics. Right. So her book is split into multiple different chapters, but the first one, The Final Girl, is a formula that she kind of noticed or a pattern, a trope emerging, which is the final girl is usually has an androgynous name. So Gretch or Leslie or something that can, you know, be both male and female. She's usually bookish and smart Mm -hmm. and like able to be very resourceful. And she's usually also seen as like the quote unquote responsible one. So not participating in drinking or drugs per se, or having sex, doing the, you know, sinful, bad things. So perhaps the most like visual of this is Laurie Strode from Halloween. Right. The iconic classic, you know, uh, John Carpenter, amazing, where Strode is all these things, though she does smoke some marijuana in the movie, but it's like minimal. So the final girl, as you can tell, by final, like last one. So she's the one that witnesses all her friends who have done these bad things, what have you, get just massacred and slaughtered. And then usually through her resilience and through her ingenuity, she conquers the monster, the villain. So even though Michael Myers survives into, you know, the sequels and all of that, um, she is able to like fend him off by right. like, manipulating a clothing hanger and like poking him in the eye. She also gets a knitting needle and like stabs him in the neck. So that kind of becomes like a trope. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's the final girl that gets away. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting with this is that Clover in her, you know, analysis says that the final girl victim hero is also, she's a kind of monstrous hero who defeats the forces of monstrosity while herself becoming excessive and demonic. So there's an emergent duality based from these like atrocious occurrences, these things that are happening, that I think parallel a type of modern-day virgin martyr. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Final Girl has been reevaluated since Clover first wrote this. I mean, if you've ever seen a Scream film and they have the scenes where they talk about, you know, never say that you'll be back because you're going to die. Never do this because you're going to die. I mean, that was like a third wave feminism revision of this whole kind of horror trope thing and playing with that, which I mean, the screams are fantastic. So all four of them come at me. (laughs) But so as I read this for my Buffy essay, I and then reading about virgin martyrs or just martyrs as a whole and saints as a whole, I was thinking about forms of torment. Right. Physical, 
as well as psychological. I mean, if you're tripping over your dead friend's bodies and being chased by like a maniacal killer, that's both forms of torment, right? Yeah, for sure. And then in my research on St. Margaret, I mean, she had a bunch of other trials, but I mean, being boiled in boiling water or boiling pitch, there's other uh, virgin martyred saints. Other really acknowledgeable examples is St. Barbara. And, you know, she's standing naked and the monks are like cutting off her breast. And if you look at images of this, I mean, not only is this a spectacle, which parallels I mean, cinema, that's always a spectacle. But, I mean, there's, like, blood gushing out of her breast. I mean, it's this gory phantasmagora, right? Yeah. And, I mean, that's what slasher films are. It's all about the gore and that excitement. So Mm -hmm. I thought, this is really interesting. And I was doing research, and I never saw any comparison of the two. And it's really interesting further. found a gap. Hopefully, I found a gap. Yeah, because the, re- <laughs> the rhetoric used to describe some of these cinematic final girls is very parallel, I would say, to descriptions of the sacred or the holy. So, an example that I cite briefly in my proposal is from an article about Kill Bill and its fascination with violence, where the author deploys rhetoric intimately entangled with medieval. So she uses phrases such as victimhood and sacrificial purity. And it's curious because she uses these, you know, this language, but there's never a connection to the legacy or the origins of where this comes from, which Mm -hmm. to me just seems obvious that it's going to be tormented saints from the medieval era. And furthermore, for those of you who don't know, when we talk about, you know, we think about the Gothic, right? We talk about the Gothic. So you either have Gothic cathedrals that are from, you know, like Notre Dame, which are from the 13th, 14th century, or we think of Gothic, right. like Gothic literature. So the literary Gothic and then Gothic revival. So this is like Parliament in London. This is all a reimagining or a revisioning of what yeah. the Gothic was in the 18th and 19th century. And that means, by extension, a return to the medieval or a reimagining of the medieval. And horror films, and therefore slasher films, emerge from the Gothic literature. So Gothic horror is more about the psychological, the, you know, what's behind the curtain sort of thing, and not so much the physical element, where then we get like slashers and horror films today, which is more about that visceral, like, so it's terror versus horror. So I just, this is all interrelated. Also female empowerment, because it challenges the, the male gaze. It challenges the fucking patriarchy, where these women are like, we will not deal with your bullshit. It confronts spectatorship. It thinks about what do we consider sacred? What is sacred? Because, so my case women that I want to like work with in my PhD, at least right now. So this is, you know, proposal beginning stage. Yeah. But so I chose five that I think are all very modern women to look at. So Buffy, right. the moral exemplar, which we spent a lot of time on. The supernaturally burdened Vanessa Ives from Penny Dreadful. So mm-hmm. he's dealing with the Victorian Gothic notions and tropes there. The tormented Helen Lyle from the early 90s film Candyman, which is based off Clive mm-hmm. Barker the gothic horror writer, um, his short story, The Forbidden. And this deals yeah. like urban legend. And what is an urban legend? And how does this relate to this? The mysterious Laura Palmer from Twin Peaks, which is a version mm-hmm. of the American Gothic and the surreal. And also mm-hmm. brilliant example of the Madonna horror complex. And then I have my wild card, which is the haunted poet, Sylvia Plath. And I look at Plath because she has a huge cult of personality now. And this is um, exhibited in Gail Crowther's book, Sylvia Plath and the Haunted Reader. She haunts poetry. One could kind of consider her a martyr of the patriarchy in her suicide. Yes, she was depressed and everything, but she was also a woman trying to find her own voice in a very male-dominated field at that time. So these are all different elements or women portraying different aspects of this. And then, of course, the hagiographic genre as a whole. I want to look primarily at virgin martyrs just because their stories, I think, 
in regard to formula and pattern overlap the most, but it's not exclusive to that. So yes, in a nutshell, I want to look at the struggle of women, both psychologically and physically, that has been and continue to have been a theme throughout the Gothic, the Gothic horror genre for, I argue, centuries. Well, this is all so fascinating. <laughs> Audience can't see this, but I'm grinning. <laughs> and I have been throughout the whole um, episode. So yeah, so you now know that Megan is an expert or soon to be expert or so. definitely aficionado in this field. Um, so if you ever have questions or articles or things that, you know, you think she might find interesting, as always, email us, message us, whatever. And I yes. guess if you have more questions for her as well, do the same. Do you have anything you'd like to add? No, I mean... You can contact me through the, you know, the podcast contact info, or you can pers like, if you'd rather just have it be directly to me, you can email me at my email, which is Miss Megan, M-E-A-G-H-A-N dot Allen at gmail.com. That's all lowercase. Or you can tweet at me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Megan underscore Allen. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear any thoughts, comments, arguments, etc. This is in the developing phases, but I'm so excited about all of this because it lets me just study the things I truly love, which is literature, television, you know, I mean, Twin Peaks, Penny Dreadful, and Buffy are some of my like all-time favorite shows. I really love it because I don't know if you read, the, there's an article, um, there was an article on The New Yorker, this is like quite vague, but there was an article about how like in the recent years, TV show academics have been born and like where this comes from and you know what they study and it's so cool that like this is a field now that you obviously because it's got it has such an impact that you can end up studying and things that are relevant and it's so interesting how these things have changed over time 100% because we're in like what do they call it the golden era of television or like the, the new golden era this began with like you know breaking bad and mad men where yeah television has become kind of like a cinematic form but something like Buffy is really interesting because, you know, it's so much of its time in regard to like the 90s and like teen dramedy, you know, that people are kind of like, Buffy, really? But it is so applicable to like so many things. And it's such a well done show. Yes, it has problems because anything from the 90s is going to have, you know, homophobia, mm. racial problems or classicist problems. But at its core, Buffy is also way ahead of its time. I mean, it has one of the first open gay relationships in the lesbian couple, Tara and Willow. And I think it has like the first broadcast kiss between women. I mean, talk about A, female empowerment and B, like just being ahead of its time. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, with, with shows, I always think that like some of them are really problematic, but then if you think you have to always keep them in, in their historical context, because yeah. if you take them away, it's just... Some of these things are just realities, unfortunately. Right. And they reflect yeah, what their society was like and what they thought and all that. Yeah, I just I think that there's like so much here. And I love that I am combining something that is considered, you know, a very kind of academic field with the medieval, medieval studies, and then like television. Woo! Yeah. And not television, but Buffy. <laughs> Twin Peaks. You know? Like it's kind of like you know, in the medieval conception of like high art and then low art and like you've got like both things together and mixing it together, <laughs> which makes it so, I mean, not, not that they're not, not that one is high art and low art. Let me, no, I didn't mean that that way, but you know, like. That's how they're conceived though by the general public, yeah. even though they're equivalent. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's pretty cool. I'm really looking forward nice. to, you know, hearing how this proceeds. Me too, especially because my top program is actually, I'd be going into a medieval studies program. I'd be becoming like an actual medievalist. So, of oh course, dear. that would... I'm not going to be able to keep up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course, that would impact the overall scope because I would be using more of a medieval lens rather than a gothic lens. Right. But, I mean, I would just love that to be in a medieval program and be like, yeah, so Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Or, like, let's talk about Twin Peaks and horror films. Oh, God. Um, I really look forward to this. I think it's going to be fun. Yeah, definitely. Just a reading recommendation to anyone if this is something that you're, like, interested in or want to kind of get more involved in. And this also links to last week in regards to saints. 
But I am currently reading a really wonderful book by Janina Ramirez. She is an academic at Oxford, and it's called The Private Lives of Saints. I mean, she talks about some of the big time saints like uh, St. Patrick. She talks about St. Columba, Gregory the Great, Pope, St. Augustine. And it's just a really accessible read. And I've been learning a lot. She kind of tiptoes at moments around what I've been talking about. Like she had one sentence where she talked about horror films and saints and then just continued. You know, so for me, I was like, there it is, but then you don't talk about it. <laughs> so I highly recommend and that. And also you don't, want, you don't want her to talk about it because otherwise you might not have anything to talk about. So Right, no, definitely. And anyone that's listening, don't take my idea. I will hunt you down. I, I mean, I, I, be upset. I, Megan is very um, good with the technology. I'm, I'm definitely the novice in comparison. So <laughs> I think she could find you. You make me sound like some sort of genie with technology. I just figured out how to, you know, make a Facebook group different from a Facebook page. <laughs> so speaking of our social media, you, so know. you can find <laughs> you can find us on Instagram by typing podcast.modern.medieval. You can find us, oh really exciting, you can find us on a Spotify and Apple podcast, but you can also find us now on Audible and on Amazon Music. I think I think just type Modern Medieval Podcast. And then we've mentioned email before. No, we haven't mentioned email this week. So email yeah, I just is... Yeah, mentioned mine. Yeah. <laughs> you can email us at modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com. We've got a Facebook page and a Facebook group or by typing Modern Medieval the Podcast. And as always... Please email us, message us. But you can um, find us on Twitter at medieval underscore podcast. Please yeah. follow us there. Check us out. And finally, thank you, Megan, for coming on the show and speaking about your PhD proposal. And I think thank everyone you. who's given this a listen will be excited to see how this develops. Hopefully. And thank you, audience, for listening to my long rambling about Buffy and St. Margaret. Yes, hopefully... This is something that I can develop and eventually one day hopefully publish a book on so that you can all read about it in anywhere from five to seven years. <laughs> Until Fingers next crossed. time. I'm Ello. And I'm Megan. And this is Modern Medieval, the podcast. Do, 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 do.